Support for the podcast series Forgotten Prison comes from Gonzaga Law School and its Center for Civil and Human Rights, dedicated to enriching the educational experience of students and contributing to the practice of civil and human rights. Details at gonzaga.edu slash law. Thanks to Humanities Washington for their generous grant. Paula, I really don't want to talk about the Special Commitment Center. Why? Because the Commitment Center is complicated. When we talk about McNeil Island, we're usually talking about the prison. And the prison is closed. But then you have this Special Commitment Center. People are still locked up there. It's behind layers and layers of razor wire. But the Commitment Center is not a prison. Yeah, but everyone thinks it is because there are sex offenders there. Although not all sex offenders. I guess the name Special Commitment Center isn't exactly descriptive either, so maybe I should just explain what it is. The Special Commitment Center is where Washington State locks up people who've been labeled, quote, sexually violent predators. They're civilly committed there after they've done their prison time. And if you're asking, how is this legal? The short answer is, the courts say it is. Washington was the first state to do this nearly 30 years ago, but a lot of others have followed suit. The term sexually violent predator implies some pretty disturbing crimes, and we're going to speak frankly about them. In this entire episode, we'll be talking about sex crimes, which could be tough for some listeners. And with that, let's head over to McNeil Island. From KNKX and the Washington State History Museum, this is Forgotten Prison. I'm Simona Licea. And I'm Paula Whistle. And the bus is indeed waiting. In this podcast, we're trying to explore how and why we lock people up. So, of course, the old prison on McNeil Island and its 136-year history can tell us a lot. But the Commitment Center, known as the SCC, is also part of that history. Even though it's not a prison, its purpose is to put people away in order to keep the community safe. To get to the Commitment Center, we went through a background check, drove about an hour south of Seattle, took the government ferry and then a bus from the dock. One thing to know is that the Special Commitment Center is actually a few miles away from the old abandoned prison on McNeil Island. Yeah, there is definitely more concertina wire on the SEC than on the old prison. However, you don't have a guard tower with guns. There are other clues that let you know this place is not a prison. The Commitment Center is run by the State Department of Social and Health Services, not the Department of Corrections. And the people here are not called inmates, they're residents. Laura, can I have you introduce yourself? My name is Laura McCollum, and um, I've been here since 1995 of November. We sat down with resident Laura McCollum in a visiting room inside the Special Commitment Center. I still meet with a therapist, um, and uh, I meet with her once a week for like two hours. So just do the best I can. When we told people we were visiting a resident at the Commitment Center, a lot of them said, aren't you scared? The truth is, Laura and this place all seem sort of ordinary in an institutional way. People watching TV, playing cards. But the question speaks to the public perception of this term, sexually violent predator. 
Laura, like everyone here, has been given that label by the state. Um, and even though I understand what I did was wrong and it was really, really bad, I don't think I deserve just to be stuck here and forgot about, like, you know, you don't exist. And I feel like that's happened to everybody here. Laura was placed in the commitment center after completing a five and a half year prison sentence for child rape in the first degree. She didn't want to talk about her crime, but according to Pierce County court records, Laura pleaded guilty in 1990 to having oral sex with a two-year-old girl, a child she often babysat. She later told interviewers she was sexually attracted to very young children and would befriend mothers to gain access to them. Pretty much all the other residents here are men. Laura was the first woman in the country to ever be labeled a sexually violent predator. She's been at the commitment center for more than 20 years. I don't think I'm predatory as a person. I think that's a behavior I did. But me as a person, I'm just me. I'm Laura. And I can change and not do predatory acts. Reports from analysts in the court records trace Laura's crimes to abuse she herself suffered as a child, a pattern that's pretty common among residents at the commitment center. The records also indicate that before she was arrested, Laura sought mental health treatment, saying she had urges to molest children. But from what we can tell, no one took any action, and she continued to have access to kids. She actually elected to come here, feeling it might help her. But now, she seems to regret that move. Unlike prison, where you have a set release date, people here are committed indefinitely. But you're supposed to be able to get out through treatment. Residents can be released unconditionally or with restrictions. Laura is trying for that second option. I'll have a chaperone, so when I go to the store, you know, or I go to the doctor, I'll have somebody with me so I'm accounted for. Getting out of the SCC isn't easy. In the nearly three decades the Commitment Center has been operating, the state has tried to send 478 people here and has successfully committed most of them. Of those who have been committed, about 80 have been released unconditionally. And even if you're willing to remain under supervision, there are a lot of hoops to go through, like finding housing or sometimes having to go through another trial. People who do get off the island also face pushback from neighbors. So residents like Laura say they're in a no-win situation, forever tied to what they did. Okay. So this is the recreation center. Um, there's a bunch of different things in here. So we kind of we got our music room. Um, here the residents are about 230 video. residents are forced to remain on the island, with most of them, including Laura, living in what's called the total confinement facility. As we're escorted around, officials are anxious to point out the amenities. Keith Devos is an administrator here. Yeah, we, we've had events in here as well, um, karaoke and things like that in here. So There's also there's a lot of gardens around here, mm -hmm. and so um, the residents will be assigned a, a garden plot, and then they'll actually take a lot of pride in um, what they grow in their garden plots. They're really amazing in the summertime. Mm -hmm. The grounds are remarkably well kept. They are nice. Nice plantings. Yeah. yeah. The residents work on the grounds. They actually take help take care of it, and uh, they get paid to do it. So it's it's a job for many of them. Oh. 
this, uh, this next building over is where the clinicians work. Um, it's also where our big treatment rooms are. Uh, Pierce College is in there for the residents for their education. And then residents do have more freedom to move about than most of them did in prison. For example, a lot of them can go to the yard anytime, day or night. There are various forms of group and one-on-one -on -one therapy, but residents are not forced to go, and experts are divided on what works and what doesn't anyway. How's it going? <laughs> yes, I'm glad you're leaving. I'm glad you're going back out. You bet. Um, yeah, so they'll use it. I mean, you'll see them out here. Most of us would probably rather not think about those so-called sexually violent predators out on that island in South Puget Sound. But forgetting about the commitment center has real consequences for people like Laura. At 61 years old, she has just one hope when it comes to McNeil Island. I... I don't want to die in this place. Uh, I can't imagine what it was like to be an inmate here and be buried in a place that didn't even mark your grave. Um, to have this stigma and to die here too, that's just like, I at least hope I'm on the other side, you know. At least I won't say I died on the island, you know. While some residents do eventually get out, for most, it's day after day, year after year of waiting, with no end in sight. All of these guys, in my opinion, could get out of here if this place would really, really work with them, and they would stop feeding the stigma to the news of who we are, how we are, what we are. We're not who we were. I'm not who I was 30 years ago. I'm not who I was five years ago. But if Laura ever were to leave the island, one woman in Tacoma says she would be terrified. I don't think that she should be ever let out. I believe, you know, she should be in there for a lifetime. Amber was Laura's victim, the one Laura pleaded guilty to raping when Amber was very, very young. Amber is now 33. We talked to her and her father, William, in their apartment in Tacoma's Hilltop neighborhood. We're only using their first names to protect their privacy. Amber and William keep close track of Laura. As a victim, Amber gets notified when Laura speaks to the media, which is why she reached out to us. When Laura is trying for release, Amber sends letters to the state explaining why she thinks Laura should never get out of the commitment center. All these years later, she's still afraid of what Laura might do. Now, she doesn't remember what Laura did to her because she was so young at the time, but she and her father say Amber was about nine when she found out. I kind of, how it happened is I went into my dad's living room and I found these videos and it said Amber 1, Amber 2. And I was like, oh, what is that, you know? And so I popped them in the, the movie cool. thing and I was on, in, on the news. My whole, you know, everything that happened with Laura, you know, everything. And I didn't know nothing about it because I was a year and a half. And so After that, like, wow, she went into therapy. William, who got custody of Amber after the abuse, says Amber acted out and struggled in school for years. So do you really blame Laura for all of this that has happened to you? Yeah. Yep, I do. I don't know. 
my feeling is we talked about it before you two came today and I asked Amber I said do you really want to put yourself through this you know and she goes yeah and I asked her what do you want Laura to know what do you want the world to know or and understand and she told me she said she goes the biggest thing I want people to understand is to know that she heard a lot of people not only me but a lot of other kids out this out there why should her sentence be cut loose other than a life sentence because she gave her nothing but a life sentence because she's still hurting today keep in mind laura wasn't sentenced to life she already served her prison time although her commitment is indefinite she's supposed to have a chance to get out but william brings up something else here too Even though Laura was only convicted in the one case, the court records from the 80s indicate she did admit to abusing other children. Amber and William have read interviews with Laura over the years. And based on those, Amber says she doesn't believe Laura when she says she's changed. So, Amber, I have a question. Um, Is there any room, do you think, for redemption forgiveness for someone like Laura or the other people or the other people there the other people maybe because I don't know their cases you know obviously you know but Laura I I know uh, you know she's just you know she's sick Amber and William's fear is very real And like a lot of the general public, they don't really distinguish between prison and the special commitment center. So long as Laura's locked away, they think the state's doing its job. Any debate about treatment or whether it's right to lock people up based on what they might do in the future doesn't really matter to them because they feel safer. Even the cost doesn't matter. We pay more than $180,000 per resident per year to run the commitment center on McNeil Island. And that's not counting the court costs also borne by taxpayers. A lot of people feel the way Amber and William do. 20 states, the District of Columbia, and the federal government all have some form of this, this idea of post-prison civil commitment for sex offenders. But Washington state was the first, and we're definitely the only state to put it on an island. In some ways, the history of how the Special Commitment Center on McNeil Island came to be is as complicated as the thing itself. But in other ways, it's quite simple. You could even argue that it came down to just one event, the murder of a young woman in Seattle in 1988. Police say a 29-year-old Ballard woman was found dead on Beacon Hill yesterday morning. The body of Diane Balashotis was discovered by a... What you're hearing is based on news reports from the time. An autopsy showed Diane Balashotis had been stabbed to death. Her killer also tried to rape her. Authorities soon landed on their prime suspect. A felon who escaped from a work release center in Seattle last month has been arrested. Gene Raymond Kane Jr. had escaped from work release the same night Diane went missing. He was doing time for assaulting two women at knife point. 
and he had been treated in a now-defunct program at Western State Hospital for so-called sexual psychopaths. Outrage about the crime began to build, so the headlines just kept coming through the rest of 1988 and into 1989. More than 100 friends and neighbors of Diane Balashotis gathered in Seattle yesterday to call for action on violent crime. Seattle Mayor Charles Royer says he will not permit any more work release programs in the city until... Jury selection began today in the trial... The PI reports the move appears to be an attempt to avoid the death penalty for Gene Raymond Kane Jr. has been convicted of killing 29-year-old Diane Balashotis in Seattle last fall. The Times reports a jury will now have to decide whether Kane should be executed or sentenced to life in prison. In March of 1989, Kane was sentenced to life without parole. He's still locked up at the state penitentiary in Walla Walla. The Balashotis killing appeared to be evidence of a system gone wrong. Diane was a nice white girl from the suburbs, just trying to make it in the city. And somehow the state lets this guy out of their sight when they knew he could have been dangerous. And then you had Diane's mother, Ida. That's what more or less started all this, because I started looking into the whole issue. Ida Balashotis was a force to be reckoned with. This interview is from 2010 when she spoke with prosecutor Dan Satterberg on King County TV. After Diane's death, Ida made it her mission to whip Washington's justice system into shape. And she started with what seemed like obvious failings in how the state handled her daughter's killer. She was classified a sexual psychopath who was in a work release program in downtown Seattle, which didn't make a great deal of sense to me. He could walk around the streets he all had, day long. Which is exactly what he did. It's hard to imagine the Special Commitment Center ever coming into existence without Ida Balashotis. She led the charge in what became the Victims' Rights Movement. But before that, in the spring of 1989, the path forward still wasn't clear. Diane's killer had been sentenced, and despite the outrage generated by her murder, state leaders still seemed slow to act. But then, something happened. Another shocking crime, this one involving a child. And in that particular case, this person was released. He abducted a seven-year-old kid in a park in, in Tacoma. The boy was raped, strangled, and sexually mutilated. His penis had been cut off, but he did survive. Would probably have killed him if someone hadn't heard them. It's every parent's nightmare. That's though. right. Absolutely. That's absolutely well, right. Everything about this case was shocking. As a reporter at the time, I remember having discussions in the newsroom about how we were going to talk about what happened to him on the air. The boy's name was never released, so we just referred to him as the little Tacoma boy. That's how everyone knew the story. Almost immediately, police arrested Earl Schreiner, who had just been released from prison. Schreiner had a long criminal record of assault, kidnapping, and murder, all involving children. This new crime put him back in prison for 131 years. The boy's mother, Helen Harlow, teamed up with Ida to call on state leaders to address crime. As summer began, the governor responded. He created the Task Force on Community Protection, and the mothers of these two crime victims had seats at the table. Here's Ida again from that 2010 conversation with Dan Satterberg. And this task force actually went around the state and held public We hearings. held six meetings. We virtually heard the same thing every place. They wanted them to be in prison longer. They wanted better ways of handling them. They wanted to know 
if someone was moving into their neighborhood, not just sort of drop there from place to place, it didn't make any difference. That the system had undervalued oh, sex offenders. The system had broken down as far as they were concerned. Yeah. As 1989 came to a close, the task force presented what would become the Community Protection Act. It was a 90-page, $70 million bill calling for longer sentences, increased supervision, and this idea of indefinite civil commitment for the worst sex offenders. The landmark bill got bipartisan support, and it became Washington state law in 1990. The little Tacoma boy grew up learning to snowboard and dabbling as an amateur DJ. But tragically, in 2005, he died in a motorcycle accident at age 23. His name was finally revealed as Ryan Allen Haid. Ida Balashotis went on to get elected and serve five terms as a Republican state representative. She died in 2014 at age 78. In a way, the Special Commitment Center on McNeil Island is their legacy. It was only 18 months from the time Diane Balashotis was murdered in Seattle to the day Washington's governor signed the Community Protection Act. Less than a year later, in 1991, the first sex offender was civilly committed after his prison sentence. The Special Commitment Center moved to McNeil Island seven years later. The creation of the Commitment Center was a huge deal, but maybe the most significant part is that it established an entirely new category of criminal, the so-called sexually violent predator. This isn't a mental health diagnosis. It's a term that was created by the state. And for those who do end up on McNeil Island, it's a label that sticks with them for life. Although this new idea of a commitment center for sexually violent predators did have quite a lot of support, it was also immediately clear that this was going to create some legal questions. One case worked its way through the courts and came before the U.S. Supreme Court in 2000. In the oral arguments, you hear the central question that was being raised about the commitment center. Mr. Young has claimed that this statute was being punitively applied and that, in fact, it was punitive in purpose from the very beginning. Does that not mean that he's been subjected to double jeopardy and is entitled to his release? Absolutely. That's, That's an exchange between former Justice John Paul Stevens and Bob Barukowitz, who argued the case against the Special Commitment Center. Bob is now a law professor at Seattle University. In a way, his argument was simple. The Constitution says you can't be punished twice for the same crime. And by locking people up after they've done their time, you are, in effect, punishing them twice. Washington State countered that it's not punishment because it's not prison, it's treatment. The sexually violent predator law created a civil process. So if it's civil, it can't be punishment because it's not criminal. Bob and his team argued, yes, the law is civil, but in practice, it felt criminal. But in the end, Bob lost the case. The Supreme Court ruled eight to one that the Commitment Center is constitutional. But all these years later, he still thinks it's a bad idea. It's really almost incomprehensible that in America, we'll lock people up based on this prediction of dangerousness in the future, even though they've been punished 
And we have this idea that once you're punished, you should be free to start your life over, but not in, not in cases that involve sexual violence. We're so afraid of it. Over the years, numerous lawsuits have been filed against the Commitment Center. There was even a federal court order in place for over a decade to make the place less prison-like. More recently, the center has been sued over issues around water quality and treatment for residents with developmental disabilities. But none of these lawsuits has really put the existence of the Commitment Center into question. uh, At the front, there's a desk and then it's got signs that say SEC's Arts and Crafts, Unit Activities, RBC, Facility Activities, very colorful signs with pictures and little stars. It it looks like a school, it looks like an elementary school bulletin board. Yeah. And more people are getting out. Almost no one was released when I was covering it in the early days. Right, not a single person was unconditionally released through treatment until 2007, 16 years after it started. But now, generally speaking, more people are transitioning off the island each year, although it's still not very many. Of the nearly 500 or so people who have ever been committed in Washington, maybe one has reoffended. still are a lot of questions, like, how do we know it's keeping us safe? Why are we paying so much? And does it have to be on an island? Yes, uh, Representative Roger Goodman uh, from the 45th District. I'm Jeannie Darniel. I'm State Senator from Tacoma, Washington. My first name is Brad. My last name is Clippert. My name is Senator Steve Oban. When we contacted state officials and legislative leaders, it seems like they're not that interested in tackling those questions. I don't think realistically uh, the Special Commitment Center would go away because it's, it's serving an important role to protect the community from those who have served their criminal sentence and yet are still determined to be a threat to the community. I see the Special Commitment Center as being a necessary uh, tool to protect the citizens of Washington State. Uh, It just has to be something that we're always willing to pay for. I would say there is very little discussion about the Special Commitment Center. Um, There's very little knowledge among legislators, especially now as the years have gone on and on and on. Very few discussions since then. The reality is there's no political mileage in taking on this issue. But the more you learn, the more it seems like we should be talking about this. If the commitment center is for treatment, then the intention has to be that people get out and reintegrate. But we're also told it keeps us safe because people are being kept away from the community. I don't really see how you can have both things, but Deputy State Attorney General Todd Bowers disagrees. Yeah, I... I don't really see that contradiction at all. Todd spent a good chunk of his career prosecuting people under Washington's sexually violent predator law and putting people in the commitment center. Todd does put up a good defense of the commitment process. This is a mental health facility. It is a secure mental health facility, um, but it is a mental health facility nonetheless. These people are not prisoners, they're residents. They uh, are given attorneys at public expense if they can't afford one. They are provided with experts at public expense. They uh, have to be committed uh, by a unanimous jury. This law absolutely makes the community safer. 
period, full stop. Laura's room was. But residents of the Special Commitment Center and their advocates question that the law is working. Public defender Andrew Morrison represents a number of residents here, including Laura McCollum, who you heard from earlier. He was with us on McNeil. And if you asked a prosecutor in this system why they do the work, and then you ask, you know, myself, you know, on one side you'll focus on the acts. And on the other side, you'll focus on the humanity. Andrew's not arguing against the idea of treatment or supervision, but he and others think the commitment center and the sexually violent predator law fail in their basic mission to transition people back into the community. Because there's such a temptation for it to become a process of warehousing instead, especially when it is an island facility that is easily forgotten about. And I think that is the root challenge in this, is do we really believe what the what the purpose of the system claims to be, or is that really just a, a fig leaf over our baser desires of just locking them up and forgetting about them? As we get on the bus to head back to the ferry dock to drive back to Seattle, I wonder if that's why we're willing to pay so much for this, The cost of keeping people locked up on an island through an expensive court process, I sometimes think it's not so much about helping people as it is making us feel safe by making us think the quote, worst of the worst can't get to us. It's like we're paying for the privilege of forgetting about the people there. Even though it's not a prison, the Special Commitment Center on McNeil Island is a pretty modern example of how our views of crime and punishment can change how we lock people up. Given the actual prison on the island ran for more than a century, the decaying structures of McNeil can help us go even deeper into how prison has changed. We head back there in Episode 3 of Forgotten Prison. Forgotten Prison is produced by me, Simona Licea. And me, Paula Whistle. Our editor is Aaron Hennessy. Additional editing from Bethany Denton, who's also our mix engineer. Bill Anschel does our music. And Parker Miles Blom is the man behind our website, ForgottenPrison.org. That's also where you can find his amazing photos of the place. Kari Plog is our digital content manager. Matt Martinez is our director of content. Our logo was created by Adrian Flores. Thanks so much to our partners at the Washington State History Museum, especially audience engagement director Mary Michael Stump and lead curator Gwen Whiting. Be sure to check out the accompanying exhibit about McNeil Island at the museum in Tacoma. That exhibit runs through May 2019. More details at ForgottenPrison.org. We also get some financial support from Humanities Washington. Thanks also to everyone who helped out with this episode, especially Jeffrey Reddick, Posey Gruner, and Matt Martinez, who voiced those news reports, which were based on articles from local papers accessed through the Seattle Public Library. And thanks to Chris Wright with the Department of Social and Health Services. 
Special thanks to the NPR Story Lab and training teams, and we also want to thank all our colleagues at KNKX for their support. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review of the podcast, and please reach out. You can find our information at knkx.org. That website is also where you'll find all the news and music we have to offer at KNKX. And it's where you can make a pledge to support the in-depth journalism that you hear in this podcast. Thanks for listening. This is Forgotten Prison. 